Thanks, guys. Hey, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and uh, turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, if you want to follow along with us this morning, we'll also have the words here on the screen or maybe use something like the Version app on your phone. Uh, if you want to turn there with us again, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're wrapping up this series today uh, on the life of David. We've called it On the Run uh, because David spent a significant portion of his life, well, on the run. Uh, he was always running, uh, fleeing for his, his life. But we've also said at the very same time that David was a man after God's own heart. And so he was always pursuing God. And, and that's what we see him no matter the circumstances, no matter the ups and downs of life, he was always turning back to God. And so as we bring this series to a close today, um, we're going to be reminded of something that is of no surprise to anyone. And it's just this, that Life rarely goes as planned. I mean, isn't it true? As you think about life, as you think about your life, as you think about the lives of maybe some of the people around you, and uh, life rarely goes as planned. And it's not that there's anything wrong with plans. It's not that there's anything wrong with dreams. And, it's, and so you could say it's okay to plan. It's okay to, to have some dreams of your own. But then life happens, right? Uh, because the truth is, the reality is we can't control everything. I mean, as much as we'd like, as much as I'd like to control everything and all the circumstances of my life, I just don't have that ability, and so we can't do that. And uh, sometimes life doesn't happen the way we want it to because of what others do, and certainly there are things in life that happen because of what we do, and so there are consequences uh, of the choices that we make. And so at the end of the day, what this really means is that life is full of surprises, uh, it's full of all sorts of surprises. And so unfortunately for some, uh, that means that you may not live happily ever after. Uh, for some, that means that you may never get the opportunity to bring a baby home from the hospital. Uh, for some, that means that your rebellious son or your rebellious daughter may never come back home, or uh, you might spend the rest of your life living alone, or you, you may not get into the school of your dreams. You may not get to do that career that you always had hoped to do and planned to do. Mon money may always be tight for you. Uh, and sometimes, well, the reality is that your health may not get better. It might not improve. And sometimes the hardest part of life is just this. Sometimes the hardest part of life isn't so much the curveballs that are thrown at us, but instead what it does to our faith. I mean, would you agree? I mean, especially if you're making every attempt, you know, like I am, like so many of us are, to walk with the Lord, man, it's just sometimes those curveballs that you would that just really have an impact on your faith and on your believing because I don't know about you, I, th I think it's so easy to fall into this trap of, of thinking that, you know what, if I, if I go to church, all right, if I, if I make every effort to follow the rules, I mean, you know what, even, even if I give, if I give financially, if I tithe, that like I ought to be entitled uh, to some level of happiness as I would choose and be free from pain, certainly. Like, it, it sort of seems like faith, you know, and following Jesus ought to be, well, kind of a guarantee of that. But today, as we wrap up the series in the life of David, you know, again, we're going to be reminded that's not always true. And we're going to ask a question of David's life uh, that, well, I think he's going to provide an answer for us. And that is, how do you respond? Like, how do you, how do you respond when things don't go as you hoped they would or as you had planned. And we've been looking at the life of David these last few weeks, if you're new with us today, just kind of glancing over really some of the highlights of his life. And we're going to try and cover a ton of ground today. Uh, 40 years, if you would, in about 25 minutes, all right? So it's just going to be a lot of info and a lot of uh, skimming over. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture references that you can go back to and check out on your own. But just to kind of catch you up to where we are right now, what we've covered these past few weeks, David was anointed king, and many believe around the age of 12, by 
by Samuel. We looked at that way back in week one, and we know that David, and probably one of the more well-known events of his life, was certainly his defeat of Goliath, and some scholars believe potentially around the age of 15. And God had made some specific promises to David, all right? But thanks to an insanely jealous king, King Saul, David often found himself, excuse me, David often found himself as a fugitive, really, running for his life in the wilderness, as we talked about last week. And so there are so many lessons to learn from David's life and from his running and from these ups and downs, all right, running from the enemy. And there's, there's many great examples of his faith and crying out to God and celebrating with God and pleading with God. As we, as we saw last week at the very end of the message, David finally became king around the age of 30. And while there are certainly so many positives of his life, in fact, many believe that David was one of the greatest kings that ever lived in all of the world, certainly Israel. And while there are so many God-honoring things that David accomplished during his reign, we just have to point out that he made a lot of poor choices too, all right? And, and the lesson learned from those mistakes, even as you do your own study, well, those often can serve as lessons for us, all right, in how we live our lives and in the choices that we make. Well, get this, 20 years after David became king of Israel, and some believe he was around uh, the age of 50 at this time, David sent his men off to war while he decided to stay home. Now, we don't know for sure why he decided to stay home because the king would often go to war with his men, but it was while all of the soldiers had gone away and David was at home that he encountered a woman by the name of Bathsheba, all right? And, and she was just absolutely beautiful, as you can tell from scripture, but there was one problem. All right, Bathsheba was married to a man by the name of Uriah, all right? Well, guess where Uriah is? He's off at war, all right? He's doing what a soldier ought to be doing. And so one night, David, who had remained at home, is watching from a distance as Bathsheba bathed, and he liked what he saw, and so he ordered his servant to go and get Bathsheba, and they spent the night together, and Bathsheba wound up pregnant. Now, I have a friend who's a pastor, and he's much older than I am, and he's very wise, and we were talking about life and ministry together one time, and I always remember him just saying this. He said, you know, Paul, sexual sin makes you stupid, all right? And it just as passionately as he could, and David is an example of just that, all right? David is an example of such a mistake because of these problems that he has, and he's got a mess that he's trying to clean up, and so what he does is this. He orders Uriah to come home from the battlefield because David figures that if he can get Uriah to come home from the battlefield and spend the night with Bathsheba, well, then they'd be able to hide to cover up their little secret. Well, if you know the story, you know the irony in that Uriah came home and Uriah was just full of so much integrity and so much loyalty that he figured that he didn't deserve to spend the night with his wife while all of his uh, fellow soldiers were out on the battlefield. And so he refuses, all right, to spend the night with his wife. Well, eventually, David's got no choice but to send Uriah back to the battlefield. And because David has a problem that he hasn't covered up yet, he's willing to do the unthinkable. All right, he's really willing to do the stupid uh, here, uh, again, this unthinkable. And he sent this message to Uriah's commanding officer. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, if you were there. David sent this message to the commanding officer. He said, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So David ordered Uriah's commander to put Uriah in a position on the battlefield where he will certainly be, be killed. It was a death sentence. Uh, really, and, and sure enough, Uriah was killed, all right? And so Bathsheba's a widow now, and, and David takes her in right away, immediately as his wife, and at first looks like, all right, that everything's good, that David has concocted this masterful plan of covering up this mistake well, but unfortunately for David, his secret wouldn't last 
long because one day a prophet by the name of Nathan, all right, makes an appointment with David. And after some conversation between the two of them, Nathan confronts David with his sin. And in that moment, and if you read this for yourself, David just literally comes undone, all right? He, he is broken over his sin, all right? We're reminded as we study his story I think David realizes, too, that the truth is that personal sin carries consequences. All right, there's always consequences for our personal sin. And so Nathan says to David, here's what he says to him, basically. He says, this is what the Lord says. Because you are the leader, David, you are accountable to the entire kingdom. And so for that reason, I am, God is going to bring a consequence upon you that everyone in the kingdom will know about. And realizing in that moment the seriousness of his sin, David replied to Nathan, look at these words if you skip over to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Here's David's reply to him. Note these words. He says, I have sinned against the Lord, right? And what a reminder that even though that David had messed up and even though he was king, I think it's just a great reminder that he never confused himself with the king of kings, right? He always understood where he was in position With God, even in his own mistakes, even in his own selfishness, he's acknowledging his faith. He is surrendering himself. He is surrendering his will and his choices, really, to the will of God here. David's words, it just, I I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied to him, you know what? The Lord has taken away your sin, David. You are not going to die. And then he goes on to explain, but because you tried to lie and because you tried to cover it up, there will be consequences for your selfish choices. Well, here's the thing, and this is where we really start fast forwarding, and so forgive me for that. But 10 years pass, all right? 10 years pass, and nothing really happens until one day David's world is completely flipped upside down. See, David had an older son, all right, by the name of Amnon, all right? And and Amnon, one day Amnon would go to his half-sister Tamar, David's daughter, and, well, he raped her. And it's a horrible story, really. And uh, this next verse is just so intense here because in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 15, the writer records, then Amnon hated her. All right, he hated Tamar with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And so if you read this story for yourself, Tamar, she's really a wreck and rightly so. And because of this culture she lives in, she knows that her life really is ruined because no one will ever marry her now because of what has happened to her. And when David finds out what Amnon has done to her, uh, he's just furious, but he doesn't really do anything, all right? Besides getting upset, he really doesn't do anything about it. He basically does nothing. And maybe he wonders to himself, you know what, how can I? All right, how can I do something? Like, who is he? Who am I to tell anyone how to manage their private affairs with what I've already done in my own life. Well, unfortunately for David, unfortunately for his family, the chaos doesn't end there because David had another son by the name of Absalom, all right? And so there's Amnon, there's Absalom, and Absalom is Tamar's brother by the same two parents, and Absalom discovers what Amnon has done to his sister Tamar, and so he's furious, but he also has compassion in that moment for her sister and for his sister and takes her in. And again, he's furious with Amnon, but he's also clever. All right, Amnon, or excuse me, Absalom is very clever. He's very patient. And instead of acting out right away, what he does is he allows a couple of years to pass. And then one day, though, because he never forgot, what he did is he invited all of his friends, he invited all of his family over, including Absalom, or Amnon. Excuse me, I'm getting them mixed up too. But the short of the story is just basically this, that Absalom got Amnon drunk, all right, really drunk, and then he had him killed. 
All right, in front of the entire party, he just kills Amnon. And because Absalom knew that his father David would not be pleased, he fled to Syria. All right, and if you read this account for yourself, how did David react? He was upset, but again, he really didn't do anything about it. He just kind of sort of let it go. Well, a few years passed until one day David could not stand seeing his son Absalom anymore. And so David sent word to Absalom and invited him to come back to Jerusalem. And it's kind of an interesting story, but Absalom agreed, all right? And when he arrived in Jerusalem, though, David wanted nothing to do with him, all right? He didn't want to talk to him. He didn't want to see him. And so even though they lived around the block from one another, there really was no contact between the two of them. Well, another two years pass. Again, there's very little contact. And Absalom's anger and resentment now towards his dad is really beginning to increase to the point that he's really out of control. And eventually, David tries to make a move with his son and to uh, kind of uh, resolve some of these tensions to the point that he even offers his forgiveness to Absalom, but in Absalom's mind, it's too late, all right? He was so bitter and he was so hurt by the actions of his father that he just really desired, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with my dad whatsoever. And again, he started thinking about a plan for himself a plan of taking over the kingdom. And while he was certainly wicked Absalom, he wasn't dumb. And so he devised this plan whereby he just really started reaching out to others around him. He started influencing the people that were around him in his life. Well, four years passed, four years of doing just that, and Absalom has finally drawn enough people to his side that he's actually got a pretty strong army for himself. And it's not clear how it actually happened, but one day, Absalom proclaims himself king as Israel to be this new king, even while his father was still serving on the throne. And so think about this, all right? Think about this if you would. It has been 16 years since David's incident with Bathsheba. 16 years later, and his world is an absolute wreck. Civil war has come to Israel, and there's this tension, and there's this division in David's family. Now, David was smart enough to see how much influence Absalom and his army attained, and so when David's servant came to him, really in a panic, saying, what in the world are we supposed to do? Look at David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 14. He says, then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape Absalom. He says, we must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And so guess what? David's on the run again. All right, he's on the run once again. He ran from Saul in his early 20s. He's running from his son Absalom now at the age of 60. And I just can't help but wonder that somewhere along the way and somewhere in his running, you know, here at the age of 60, that he had to be thinking to himself, this isn't how I expected it to go. I think all the way back to when he was anointed king over all of Israel at the age of 12, fast forward to the age of 60, he's running once again and thinking to himself, I didn't expect it to go like this. This really isn't how I I had it planned. This isn't really how I dreamed it would be, but you know what? Life rarely goes as planned, right? And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Even as you think about your own life, as you think about your own circumstances, as you think about the relationships that you have with others, maybe a, a spouse or an ex or with your children right now or a, a friend or a used-to-be friend or 
maybe an estranged relationship that you have with your parents, that life rarely goes as planned. And maybe for some of you today, like David, maybe you would say, you know what, heartbroken, that, that would describe where I am today. Or uh, maybe hurt or uh, disappointed or, or frustrated. And, and you know what, here's the thing, if you've been through some difficult times or if you're in the mess of it right now, it's only natural that we stop and ask questions like, where's God in this? Or... Uh, what, what, what's the point of going on? What's the point of, of believing or why even try? I mean, isn't it so true? Isn't it so easy to get so frustrated with God at times? I'll be honest and say I've been there. I, I've been there in my life. I've been there as a pastor. I've been there while in ministry. I, I've been frustrated. I've gone through some things that have really challenged me in my faith and challenged my prayers. And it's just like I'm, ti- I'm tired of praying about this. I, I pray about this all of the time. There seems to be little to no movement by God. And so sometimes it just kind of makes you wonder, is it even, is it really worth it at all? And for David, you know, this isn't the first time he's gone through something hard. I mean, he's had lots of good days, but there's, there's certainly been some difficult ones too. So many ups and downs, so many days of chaos, so many days on the run. But do you know what happens? You know what happens when you spend enough time here on the planet and when you continually turn to God over and over again with your life? Here's the thing, you learn some things. Uh, even in our wisdom, even as we age, we gain some perspective. You learn some lessons about life. We see that in David. Here's what I mean. You know, Absalom proclaimed himself to be the king, all right, the new king. And so fearing for his life, David and his most loyal officials, they're going to flee the city of Jerusalem. Well, one of the men who fled with David was a man by the name of Zadok, all right, Z-A-D-O-K, and Zadok was the high priest, and he was responsible as the high priest for watching over the Ark of the Covenant. If you think back to your Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark days, all right, this is Bible stuff here, all right, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was central to the faith of David in Israel. It really was, because for them, the Ark represented the presence of God, all right? If you were near the Ark, you were near God. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. All right, the ark represented the presence of God. And, and so you couldn't be closer to God than when you were in the presence of the ark of, of the covenant. And so David and, and these priests, they, they have the ark. And, but for many, the ark was really just kind of like this good luck charm. All right, it was really nothing more than a, a rabbit's foot or something. And, uh, but for David, what we see in him here, and if you look at this for yourself, is that he wasn't comfortable escaping with the ark. He wasn't comfortable removing it from Jerusalem. Like he refused, and here's why, here's what I think. He refused to believe that he could manipulate God. That just by having this in his, you know, presence, all right, that his possession, that, that he could somehow manipulate God's work with it. And so with that, David, what he did is he ordered his men, even as they were fleeing, to take the ark to return it back to the city. And, and I certainly think this must have been an unpopular decision for David because Absalom was the enemy here. He's the one creating this mess. And David's people hadn't done anything wrong. But listen to what David said to to Zadok. This is just so good. It's his explanation for why he wanted to return the ark to the city. Look at 2 Samuel 15, verses 25 and 26. Here's what David said to Zadok. He said, take the ark of God back into the city. And then this, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But then he says this, but if, but if. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. I am ready. Basically, if these are the end of the days of my life, David says, I am ready. And then this, and let him do 
to me whatever seems good to him. Again, look at those words once more. I think they're so significant. David says, let him. He's talking about God here. He's talking about his father. He's talking about this this God, this creator that he has turned to over and over again for these last 60 years of his life. He says, let him. Basically, not, not what I want. Here's what David resolved, but what, but what God wants. It's, it's not what I desire in this moment. And really, like, it really how I'd like for these things to turn out. But here's, here's what I want to demonstrate in this moment. I, I want to I live my life for him. And so let God's will be done on this earth. This is so important. I think this is so important in his maturity and in his character and in his faith after all these years. David says, it's not what I want, but what God wants. And so he was in the thick of it. You know, again, his life was a a mess here and nothing was going as planned. But even here, yet David, he had not lost his faith in God. I just think what humility for David. You know, David's way of proclaiming, you know, God, my life is in your hands. And this doesn't in any way change David's prayer and what he's going to ask the Lord to do because he's going to ask the Lord to return, you know, David and his men to the city. He's going to continue praying these things, all right, but in the very same moment, his attitude of what, it's what God wants that is so important to me. I think this is why David was called a man after God's own heart, as he was continually seeking the Lord, not because he was perfect, all right, it's not because he got everything that he want, but because he never confused his position with God's. And in spite of the pain and in spite of the frustration and in spite of the turmoil, he never lost his confidence or his faith in God and he refused to try and manipulate God and he wasn't willing to allow the ark to be used as a means of getting what he wanted or what he felt like he deserved. He, he wasn't going to reduce God to that. And so it was David's way of saying before God and before others, you know what? My life is in his hands. And it's not what I want, but it's what he wants. It's David's way of saying, and I'm okay with that. I've learned to be okay with just that. Well, here's the story. Here's the rest of the story. David and his closest officials are going to flee the city of Jerusalem. And Absalom is going to take the city without a fight. And then he's he's got a really tough decision to make. Absalom does. Again, the son of David. He knows that he can't truly be king until he kills his father. And so long story short, Absalom and his most trusted men end up in a battle against David and his army, but David's men were much uh, too much for Absalom's army, and so they were overwhelmingly defeated, and not only that, but Absalom was killed too. Now, what did David do? Well, he was a mess, all right, and he mourned the death of his son to the very point that David's men were even fearful to celebrate their victory because they didn't know how David was going to react. Others thought that David ought to be celebrating his return as king to the city of Jerusalem and all of the kingdom. But for David, the victory amounted to very little because he had lost another son. And I think add to that that David felt the weight of his own sin and his own selfish choices and how they had contributed to all of this. Here's how the story, the life of David ends. He would serve as as king for another nine years in Israel before he died eventually around the age of 70 years old. Here's the thing as we wrap it all up this morning. David's story is messy, right? 
And, and I, I sort of applaud the biographers here because they really don't spare any details. Like, you know, even this great king, even this man after God's own heart, you read the story, you read the details for your scythe, yourself, you'll see that it's full of all sorts of, uh, of juicy details. None of them are spared. And I guess I'm somewhat relieved in that, that this man is still referred to a man after God's own heart. At least me, maybe it means that there's some hope for me and uh, hope for all of us. And I appreciate Chuck Swindoll and what he says about this story. He says, you know, and I'm grateful that the words of the Bible have been spoken and completed. He says, I shudder at the thought that all of the details of my life might be exposed for someone else to see and to learn from. But here's the thing, you know, even with all of his mistakes and flaws, even in the ups and downs, even with all of the running and the chaos... I just want you to notice something so important about David's life, and that is that he never gave up on God, all right? David never gave up on God, and you know what? God never gave up on him. God never gave up on David. And I think there are so many really important lessons about life and faith and trust uh, that can be found all throughout David's life, but maybe our greatest lesson we can learn from David is how to respond when life doesn't go as planned when things don't turn out the way that we want them to. Because here's what David knew. David knew that in all of the ups and downs and all of the running, that God was always there with him, that he had a friend and he had a, a father that he could turn to at any time and in any moment, no matter what he faced, no matter what he was thinking, no matter what troubled him, no matter questions that he had, no matter the confusion, he could always turn to God. Take this as an example, Psalm 23. You know Psalm 23, it's probably uh, some of the most well-known words in all of Scripture. David says this, he writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And where was David's hope? David's hope was in realizing that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, David's lesson, I might lose everything, but I'm not going to lose my faith in God. Or maybe write it down in your notes like this today. It was David's way of saying, I will not give up on him because he's not gonna give up on me. I will not give up on him because he will not give up on me that even in the presence of my enemies, David says, he provides for all that I need. And even in the valley, the darkest of valleys, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And this morning, I just want you to know that the same is true for you. The same is true for you no matter what it is that you're going through in your life right now. No matter what you face, no matter the concerns, no matter the hurt, no matter the anger, no matter the resentment that you might be experiencing, no matter the wounds that have yet to be healed, no matter the prayers that you've been praying that have still gone unanswered, the same is true for you, that God has not given up on you. He's not, he, he has not given up on you based on your track record or your performance. He is not uh, judging his presence. He's not evaluating his presence in your life based on how good you've done so far. He is a faithful God. He promises to be with us as we trust him as our Lord and as our Savior and as our Father 
and he's not giving up on you. And so if I could just say this to you today, I would just encourage you, don't give up on him yet. Don't give up on the Lord. Don't give up on this good shepherd that we have because one day, you know, one day, uh, only day, for David, you know, only day after day of not giving up on God could bring him to this place where he was able to say, not my will, but his will. Only day after day of walking with God through the ups and downs of life was David able to say, it's not my will, but it's his will and what he wants for me. Some, sounds like someone else. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but uh, sounds like someone else that we know from Scripture, right? I mean, doesn't that sound like Jesus? That sounds like what Jesus did, like when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane facing certain death, right? That he, in his pleading before God, I mean, those ultimate words of not my will, but your will be done. In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are so many parallels, really, between David's story and Jesus' story. Like, like, look at it like this. Like, both of them were overlooked by their families. Like, we know that David was the last one to be considered. You know, Jesse even forgot about him, that he was out in the fields. And for Jesus, well, the Bible tells us that he was a stranger to his brothers. Uh, if you look at their stories, both of them rose to their prominence in their 30s. Both, both of them spent significant time being pursued by their enemies. Get this, people wept for David as he and his, his, uh, his loyal army fled Jerusalem. People wept as Jesus carried his cross out of the city to the place called Calvary. Right? And for David, he hoped for things to change. He prayed and submitted to God's will as we see here in the end. In the very same way, Jesus also prayed for deliverance but all the while submitting to his father's will. And so much of David's suffering was the result of his own personal sin or the sin of others around him. Jesus suffered too, but not because of his sin. He suffered because of my sin and your sin. And thankfully for each of us, he carried those sins with him to the cross where he dealt with them once and for all. And Jesus rose from the dead, all right? And he came back to life so that he could be our living hope. And so that's the promise that we have. That's the promise that we have as Christians today, that we have this living hope in Jesus Christ. And as with David, Jesus, what he does is he promises to be our shepherd, no matter what we may face. And, and, and he promises to be our comfort. And it's Jesus, the one that promises to be our provision. And, and he is this bridge that connects us to God so that we can be in this daily relationship with him. And he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb of God that takes away your sin and my sin. See, as David has the Father, so too do we have the Father in an even greater way through Jesus Christ who has provided a way back to him. See, Jesus is our living hope. Even when things don't turn out as we hope, even as we go through difficult things, we have a hope in a Savior who walks with us and guides us and promises us that he will give us what we need. Let's pray. And as we pray today, and I know maybe for some of you this morning, maybe you find yourself in a, and really in a desperate place and a place of uncertainty, a place of longing, Maybe a place of frustration, a place of confusion. If you know Christ as your Savior, I just want to remind you this morning that we have a shepherd 
We have a shepherd in Jesus Christ. We have a, a father who loves us and who provides for us and wants to give to us. He's the one that guides us along right paths. He's the one that walks through us through the, with, the, with us through the very darkest valleys of life. He says, you don't need to fear any evil for I am with you. He's the one that comforts us and he's full of love and he's full of grace and and maybe your prayer before him this morning could sound just something like this wherever you're seated today. Maybe you just need to hear yourself pray to him. God, I'm not giving up on you because I know you haven't given up on me. And maybe for some of you today, maybe you don't know that love. Maybe you've never experienced the power of Christ in your life before. Maybe you've never trusted him as savior. But maybe the today is the day for you. And maybe in some way that's difficult to explain, maybe, maybe it's as a result of conversations, questions that you've been asking, reading and studying that you've done on your own, maybe just in the power of God working in your life today, you feel like today's the day to trust Christ as my Savior, that even in the frustration, even in the hurt, even in the uncertainty, there just seems to be something right about turning to the Lord today and maybe for some of you for the very first time. I just want to encourage you as we pray this morning, and if that's you, if that describes where you are, he knows your heart, he knows your mind, he knows where you're at today. But maybe in just the way of hearing it for yourself, maybe you just need to hear yourself say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Because it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter where you've been or even where you find yourself today, he hasn't given up on you. And if for whatever reason you gave up on him, you, you don't need to. You can come back to him today. That's the really great thing about our God. We can always come back to him. But maybe you need to hear yourself say, I need you in my life, Lord Jesus. Come into my life today. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for all the lessons of life that we gain as we read your word. And as we read your word, how you draw us in. Teach us to be people who look to your word, Lord, and in conversation with you each and every day, experience a peace and a goodness like nothing else in this life. And be our strength and be our life and be our stronghold, be our helper, God. You know the needs of every person in this room today. And I pray that we might experience you in some powerful way, whether it be today or tomorrow or this week, as just a reminder that you are there with us and that you are our hope. You are everything that we need. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, our hope. He is everything we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.